Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Woidis, and I'm your host. Before we get started, happy 2018, everybody. Did we all make reading and writing resolutions? Mine is to read 52 books this year. That's a book a week, so I'm going to need some recommendations. If you send me one at amanda at lifetk.com, I'll send you a recommendation back. How's that? Okay, I'm so excited to be kicking off the new year with some great advice from Vanessa Waugh, who is both a journalist and fiction writer. Her fiction has appeared in places such as The Atlantic, and she has a book of short stories and a forthcoming novel, but more on that in a sec. I'm just going to pause here to tell you that synthesizing Vanessa's career is really hard because she's done so much and won so many awards, but I'm going to do my best. First up, journalism. Vanessa has been writing about Asia and its people for almost 20 years, and has reported from far-flung places like Burma, Panama, China, and South Korea. But she also writes about Asian immigrants in the U.S. One piece I really love of hers is about workers at a San Francisco dim sum restaurant who sued the owners for back wages and ended up getting a whole lot more. It's called The Dim Sum Revolution, and it was published by San Francisco Magazine, and you can find it online. Also, when Vanessa was 29, she wrote an investigative piece about California's Secretary of State and his fundraiser, which led to an FBI investigation and his resignation. She was 29. That's crazy. Now Vanessa writes a column for the San Francisco Chronicle, which you can follow online. And what I love about her columns is that she'll take a really big issue like climate change and write about her experience with it in everyday life, like when she had to move a camping trip with her twins to a different location because of the wildfires in California. So find those online. Check out VanessaWa.com for more of her journalism. And now fiction. Vanessa is the author of a book of short stories called Deceit and Other Possibilities about immigrant families in America. It received an Asian Pacific American Award in Literature and was a finalist for a California Book Award. And she has a new novel titled A River of Stars coming in August of this year, which is about a pregnant Chinese woman who comes to the United States, and I can't wait to read it, and you should check it out too. Add this to your 2018 reading list. It's definitely going to be one of the 52 books I read this year. Okay, let's find out what Vanessa was up to in her 20s. interested in journalism in, in college and worked on the school paper and I had internships. And so when I graduated, um, I was 22, I went to the, the LA Times had this reporting program. Um, and so, you know, it was amazing. We, you know, were in the downtown bureau, we were at, you know, we worked at a police station for one segment. Um, I was, in the business section. So I got a, a real um, taste for all kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, 
so and, I mean, and throughout, I just it, it just reminded me of how much I love reporting. That like I would just drive around or walk around new new neighborhoods, um, you know, pick up ethnic publications, look through the ads, just look for all sorts of opportunities for for stories. I I don't think you can turn it off. That sort of like curiosity about the world um, yeah. that I think that I think I bring to my fiction and my journalism. Um, so then the following year, as part of this program, I went to the Hartford Current um, because uh, it, I think at the time or even now they were part of the same um, newspaper chain. And so it was my first time I'd ever lived outside of California. Um, well, I had an internship in college in New York, but, you know, to truly live somewhere. I just knew nothing of know or just how, you know, other parts of the country really how people live. But I knew I didn't want to remain, um, like, in the bureau. And so when there was a chance to do a rotation in the business department, since I'd had experience already at the L.A. Times, I, I jumped for it. And, I mean, I wasn't just writing about, like, you know, the market's closed up or, or down. You know, there's, there's a place yeah. for those kinds of stories. But I was able to write about urban sportswear or, you know, anything that I was really interested in, I could always find a, a business lens for it. Yeah. So so then, um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to come back to California. And um, so I made it back because I'd had that business experience. I made it back um, in 1999 at the height of the dot-com boom um, to become a reporter for the San Francisco Examiner. And that was a lot of fun, just either, you know, just an exciting time, and but also a kind of silly time, too. All these companies that had no business being funded, like, blowing all their uh, funding on launch parties every week. So, yeah. <laughs> um, after that, the examiner merged with the Chronicle, and I switched from covering uh, telecom to I, – I proposed to be called digital culture – so that meant I got to write about um, lady DJs who worked at tech companies during the day but were in this collective at night or going to Burning Man and writing about the tech connections um, even then. So, that was so cool. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I also was, had always had a dream of reporting from overseas and also just wanting to be – I was also interested in, in writing about emerging immigrant communities um, based on the neighborhood where I was living in in the mission and also because I'm the American-born daughter of Chinese immigrants. So I was, mm -hmm. like, really interested in those journeys that people make. So I saw that the uh, company at the time was offering uh, tuition reimbursement. So I started taking a Spanish class. So often I'd show up to – somewhere and I'd try to interview someone and they would only speak Spanish and I'd try to use my high school French. So I, I started taking the Spanish classes on the company dime. Um, and it was there that I also met my future husband. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. True story. After I would introduce him to people, like a number of friends also started taking Spanish class. And oh my gosh. But that wasn't why I took the class. Um <laughs> But, but based on that experience, I found out about this journalism fellowship where you could propose, you know, a trip to any country. And I, I, I decided to pitch a story about Panama. You know, I've always been interested in this, the Chinese diaspora and the fact that, you know, Chino Latinos 
what, what is their identity like? And Panama was interesting politically as well as culturally, and there was recent immigration. So because I had now Spanish in my toolkit, um, I put together this proposal. I contacted someone who'd won the fellowship before to get advice. I think I might oh, that's really smart. Her yeah. proposal. I mean, I think that's one lesson. Like, just always ask for for help. More often than not, people will help you because someone helped them along the way. Yeah. But, of course, you should never be demanding or expect anything because they're very busy yeah. people. But it, it doesn't hurt to ask. So I put together the pitch, and I won the fellowship, um, and that was quite exciting. And then the following year, um, I was able to get a fellowship to, to Burma. Um, actually, I think it was originally just Sri Lanka, but then, like, civil war broke out again. So oh, my gosh. Right, because of thinking that maybe a dictatorship was more stable. I don't know. But, Ooh, um, yeah. That was totally fascinating. What I found is, you know, you just need that first uh, chance, and, and then, then you can sort of really build on that because then you know how to write a proposal that people want, and they – know that you can do it because you have the stories to prove it. What is it like when you decide, I want to do this big reporting trip overseas? Like so many of us don't ever get to do that or would be brave enough to do that. Like what is the biggest challenge is kind of dropping down in a different country and setting out to tell these stories? I think sometimes the the time pressures um, can be difficult because even though you're there for two weeks, <clears throat> sometimes, mm-hmm. although I was in Panama for like six weeks, but otherwise you're usually only there like for a week or two and you can feel like, well, if I don't get this interview, if this doesn't work out perfectly, then I'm not going to be able to, to get this interview. Or yeah. there is always that fear that you propose something and when you get there, the story doesn't quite pan out the way you thought it would. Um, but then you kind of come to the realization that that's okay. You're going to tell the story you did find and are finding. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, I've always tried to prepare as much as I humanly can, even um, from from abroad. So meaning get in touch with people, email them beforehand, talk to them beforehand, read it, read as much as I can beforehand. Um, but then sometimes unavoidable things come up. For example, a couple of years ago, I was supposed to go to Nepal on a reporting fellowship. As I was in the air, like the earthquake, the devastating earthquake. Oh, God. Yeah. So I, like, got off the plane in Abu Dhabi, and, like, I was getting all these messages, and, like, I had to decide whether to stay or go. Um, yeah. And ultimately, for, for my family, for me and my family, I, we, I decided to come back. But mm-hmm. um, later on, I was able to go to Ecuador with the same foundation. So just in terms of reporting from abroad, like, I guess, break it down into manageable pieces. You might think, like, how could I possibly go to another country where I know no one? Right. Um, Won't it be dangerous? I mean, I think you, you you just try to prepare as much as you can and then always ask for help. And other reporters or other people in your field may have some, some contact that you could try to call upon. So it's okay if you didn't do exactly what you set out to do, because that's part of what reporting is, finding out what's out there. I feel like Vanessa is a master of the next step, both in reporting and in life, because her advice about taking reporting projects and breaking them down into manageable segments is good advice when evaluating your career, too. Think about where you want to be and work backward. 
What's the step before that and how do you get there? Who can you reach out to to give you advice about how to achieve that? Once you figure that out, think about what the step before that might be, what you'll need to get there, and who might help you with it. If you don't know where you want to be like me, think about one thing you might like to do and follow the same steps. And when you apply for these scholarships, like, are you coming up with an idea of already, like, the story you want to tell? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, and, I mean, it depends on the, the sort of fellowship. Um, some of them are, like, reporting trips where they take you around to different places for different kinds of stories. So that will sort of dictate your stories. Although you, I've always had to do additional reporting on top of that in order to mm-hmm. make it a fully fleshed story. Other times... I, I set my own itinerary. I set my own stories entirely. For example, I wrote about South Korean adoptees who moved back to Korea as adults. In some cases, some of them even gave up their adopted citizenship. I found someone who'd had, who had ties to the Bay Area, I think because I contacted some adoptee organization in Korea, and they're like, oh, you should speak to so-and-so. Um, I believe she's from California. So I went in and I got to know her and interviewed her, but it could have gone the other way. Like she, right. the, the source could have refused, but then I just would have, again, ended up with another, another kind of story. So. Right. And how did you kind of get that idea in the first place? So, so part of the way I was able to make a case for these foreign stories often was to mm-hmm. find a, a local or regional connection. So I also knew that South Korea I don't know if it's been surpassed by China, but it, it, like, had the most number of adoptees in the world, and they were also the oldest, because this all happened sort of um, in the aftermath of the Korean War. So, I mean, I'd had adoptees, Asian adoptees, in my school when I was growing up, and, you know, it was always sort of like, well, what's that like for them? Um, Yeah. And so I began to see what kind of stories there might possibly be. And then I think I actually did find, like, another – magazine story about some of the organizations and that helped kind of point me in the right direction. So that's why it's always good to sort of search around and and work your contacts. And um, I mean, I don't do this as much anymore, but I used to send emails to friends who kind of were smart about certain things or in the know about things and, you know, ask them for advice or to direct me. So just work whatever network you have. Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah. So then the following year, it was a big year, it was 29, it was the year I got married, the year I was able to go to China and do a whole series of stories that looked at the connections between the Bay Area and China. Um, And I also launched with another reporter this investigative journalism um, project that led to the resignation of the Secretary of State and put his fundraiser in jail. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so so it was a big year. After that, it's like, okay, what what else do I want to, do I want to go on doing? And it was actually the following year when I turned thirty that I was in South Korea on another journalism fellowship, and I was talking to a reporter and I said, oh, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. And she said, then write one. <laughs> she was just making conversation. Yeah, and it kind of put a bug in my head, like I I really should figure out the things I need to do to get me there. And I think. It was around my mid-20s that I began getting back into fiction. It's something that I always done when I was growing up, but had decided to focus on journalism yeah. for the first, you know, after graduating. But 
I had begun to you know, join writing groups, going to writing conferences, sending my stories out to literary magazines. And so by the time I was on the South Korea trip, I'd probably done as much as I could do without, you know, fully devoting it. I mean, I would right. I was writing in the mornings, on weekends. But after I went to South Korea, that's when I thought, okay, I'm going to start trying to write this novel, and I'm going to start trying to apply to get my MFA. It was in my, my early 30s that I eventually left to go get my Master's of Fine Arts. And so my interest was in getting mentorship and time, space, and funding to, to work on my novel. So even though I know the podcast is about your 20s, I do want to say that you don't have to do everything you ever set out to do in your 20s. It was helpful for me, at least, to go to grad school at, um, in my early 30s, even though I was older than some of my classmates, because I felt like I knew what I wanted by then, I'd, and I'd had enough work experience to, to set those deadlines for myself, and also to meet with professors and to take advantage of everything and, and not feel shy or like I couldn't talk to them. I love when Vanessa says that you don't have to do everything in your 20s. As excited as I am to turn 30, and trust me, I'm so excited, I sometimes forget that I don't have to accomplish everything I want to before then. And in fact, maybe it's strategic to hold off until I've gotten some more life experience under my belt. I guess my advice would be if you are ready to make something, even if it's not 100% perfect, just do it, of course. But don't kick yourself if you feel like you need more time or reflection before you attempt it. Also, I was doing some research trying to find stories of successes that came later in life for popular writers. And I found an article that was all, J.K. Rowling didn't write Harry Potter until she was 31, which is like, shut up, internet, that is really impressive for a 31-year-old. So are you, you're working on a novel right now, right? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. I'm, just, um, I'm finishing that up. It's about to go to copy edits. It's coming out. Oh. It's called The River of Stars, and it's coming out um, in August 2018, so I'm very excited about that. Okay, awesome. Congrats. That's so cool. What advice do you have for someone who wants to write a book, wants to be writing more in their off time? Like, what is your best advice on how to just, you know, sit down and write the book? Is it really as simple as that? Uh, well, yeah, telling yourself you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> and also cutting things out of your life. Um, I was talking to an author. I'm like, oh, how did you work full time and finish your book? She's like, I never went out. I only went to people's birthday parties if it was, like, a big birthday, like, you know, 30, 21, you know, 40. And, and then she said, and I got that. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yeah, like, so that's one way of doing it. That's how it worked for her. For me, it was realizing that I needed to go to – I wanted to go to grad school and center, you know, novel writing in my life and, and finding ways around it. But also finding work that pays well but takes less time. There's that 80-20 rule you may have heard of where uh, spend 20% of your time on work that produces 80% of your income and 80% oh, of your hard. time on stuff that accounts for 20% of your income. So, you know, find the work that still leaves you, like, the ability to think and not be exhausted at the end of the day, but it's still um, – and there are there are things out there, so um, – so, so you know, finding that sort of balance and having an understanding partner is also important. I think we were dating or I was engaged at the time, but when I would write, he would like, he got back into flying again. So yeah, 
which would take a big block of time where I like encourage them to go play golf. <laughs> yeah. You know, have time for each other, but also make sure they're not feeling sort of like neglected by your, your writing habit. And, and one thing I will say beyond even, you know, butt in the chair, um, what I found to be so helpful was to be, to become a part of writing communities, to trade work with people, to after a class, maybe connect with one or two and say, like, hey, do you want to keep in touch? Do you want to form a writing group? Do you want to trade work? And that's how you hear about interesting opportunities. Like, I always urge people to volunteer for literary magazines or literary festivals or to just kind of get involved in that community because that's it, – it's good to be – it's good to find your tribe. And they'll help you when times are tough, and they'll celebrate you when, you know, when there are victories. I love what Vanessa says about finding work that takes little time but produces enough money to sustain you. I still work a normal eight-hour job Monday through Friday, but what has been a game-changer in terms of productivity for me is starting work at 8 a.m. and leaving at 4. It almost gives me another full workday to do freelance stuff and life TK stuff when I get home. I have two work periods, 8 to 4 and 5 to 10. But the key for me was starting the thing I have to do, my day job, in the earlier time slot. I can't make an excuse for myself and sleep in. So if you're trying to make more room in your life for projects you love, but you're not quite ready to leave your job, if you're able to change your work schedule to begin at 8, I highly recommend it. So I think kind of looking back on my 20s, some points that I have taken with me always is to find mentors, you know, to ask for help. It's such a pleasure when you eventually get to mentor people in turn. Mm-hmm. Um, to always be trying to learn new things, taking classes. You could find a partner <laughs> um, or you could uh, get a skill that can help your employer see you in a new light. And besides like language classes, when they started talking about podcasts at the newspaper, I instantly jumped um, on board and played around with the equipment and um, actually even did a few radio pieces, which was fun and just something different. And I think also just good to know how to do as a, as a freelancer now. Um, yeah. And also to try and get to know people from around your workplace. I was on this committee to try and improve diversity in both our coverage and hiring. And that's how I got to know people in the photo department, in the features department, in the business department, and on the copy desk. And normally, um, even though newsrooms are very collaborative, you kind of stick to your own corner. Um, right. and, and, and by knowing other people, you kind of hear what's going on around your workplace and you kind of gather strength besides the fact of whatever the committee is that you might be kind of pulling yourself together for, like the, the mission of that, which I also really believed in. I love that. Um, going back to when you said, you know, like finding a mentor, asking people for help, like how did you go about that and who are the women who you turned to when you were in your 20s? So there was um, actually as part of this committee to improve diversity, one of our Mm -hmm. proposals was to create a mentoring program. And I didn't, we didn't intend it, but to be that way, but I was one of the beneficiaries of that. And so we got (laughs) management on board and there was an editor who I think helped make all the arrangements. And I got teamed up with Susan Sward, an amazing investigative reporter 
so if something came up, I'd message her and we'd like eat in the hallway or yeah. go out to lunch like you know, once a month or something like that. Um, and we became friends. And she just had really sound advice. Um, and she really taught me how to navigate. And if there were times where she needed to, felt like she needed to speak up, she would as well. And she was someone that people trusted and respected in the newsroom. Um, but I also um, informally reached out to people. Um, I remember at the Hartford Current, there was someone who's, who's writing. I, you know, he was like the best writer and reporter in the department. And so I reached out to him. I, he read over my stories before I then turned him in and, you know, then they'd end up on the front page. Um, and we're, we're still kind of in contact um, thanks to the, 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 the power of Facebook. But yeah. you, I mean, it's about seeking people out whose work you admire and trust and who actually just seem like genuine good people. <laughs> like that yeah. aren't, um, I mean, and, and, and you can tell, you can always tell. I mean, again, you kind of can start that relationship if it's more informal by just, just asking, could you look this over? Don't, like, email them and send an attachment with your story before getting their permission. And, I mean, it has to feel also like a, a relationship, like get to know them. You know, I I remember someone recently said, uh, can I take you to coffee? And so we sat and we talked and, like, go in just trying to establish this, this friendship. So. Yeah, that's great advice. I feel like it's sometimes difficult. Like, I almost feel guilty asking, especially women, for help. I just feel like, um, especially in, I work in magazines, that everyone's doing nine jobs now. And if you do have a partner or a family, like, women still do sort of, like, the bulk of the the work of, like, running a household or managing a family. So sometimes it feels like I don't want to burden you with things. That's, like, that's a good impulse. But at the same time, I would say don't suggest going out for drinks because they're going to have to rush home to do pickup. Yeah. Um, see, see if you could go to lunch with them. Or can I say, hey, can I walk with you? Like there's there's little pockets of time that that you could you know could like meet in the hallway for like yeah yeah that's really smart they're already in the office anyway or you could even you could even bring them a coffee you could say I'm, yeah I'm going to get coffee can I bring you something and and I want to ask you a question so that's really smart well I, I remember that. taking this um, workshop at a journalism conference and it was really funny it was called like how to manage your boss. Um, and then one of the pieces of advice was to bring them gifts, but not. Oh. <laughs> but I understood what it meant. It meant yeah. um, appreciate them. Let's say they did something for you that was really helpful, um, like approved your time off to go do some reporting trip. Get them yeah. something from the reporting trip. Like it's as easy as that. So. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. The phrase "managing your boss" was really interesting to me. So I did a Google search of those exact words in the name of intrigue. And one of the first things that popped up was an article on Forbes, of course. And I kid you not, it was called How to Manage Your Boss because the internet knows everything. One of the tips was simply make your boss look good. There's obviously a bunch of different ways you could do this, but I think it's just a good reminder that laying a foundation of always doing your best work and representing your team in the best possible way at all times is key to building that trusting relationship with your manager.
Um, what would you say was like the biggest challenge of your twenties? That mm. no, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, even though I've presented this, what sounds like a methodical step-by-step, this is how I achieve my goals. Like at the time, I didn't know. And sometimes, you know, I struggle and think, is this going anywhere? Am I ever, how do I get from here to there? Am I spinning my wheels? And so I remember even more recently talking to a friend um, and he said, no, we don't need a career coach. We need psychics. Yeah. <laughs> he tell us that no matter what we do, it's going to be okay. So, or that you're going to get what you want, or if you don't get what you want, it's still going to be okay. So um, just learning to live with uncertainty, trying as you know best as I could, and, and you know, just being um, kind to myself, too. Because, like, there's so often you can blame yourself for not getting where you need to be, but really there's all sorts of things in place that you have to work against or work through in order to reach your goals. So kind of on the flip side, like, what do you think the biggest challenge is now that you're further along in your career? Like, how does that, how does it change as you gain more experience? Do you, problems get, like, more complicated? Does it get simpler now that you've had perspective and, like, kind of distance on your 20s? I definitely, I think I have more perspective and I can sort of tell myself, like, you know, you're going someplace new where you don't know anyone, it's going to be okay. People will like yeah. you or someone will like you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you're still going, you're still going to have those feelings in some ways, like life really is high school over and over again. Yeah. And no matter what goal you've reached, you're never going to feel like you've arrived, or at least I haven't. I mean, maybe there are people out there who have that in their life, but because as you get deeper into a field, you become aware of like, oh, so you can actually get this, or oh, Mm -hmm. I didn't know you could do that, Um, and so that helps push you on, but, you know, the fact of the matter is I have six-year-old twins, Um, they're, they're not babies anymore, but I'm not going to have the vast stretches of time to myself that I once did, so I'm just going to have to do what I can in the time that I do have. So that kind of reminds me of this. I don't think it's a very recent column, but there's this column in the cut and someone I think wrote in and they were like trying to decide if I should have children. Um, but my career, you know, there's, there are more things that I would like to do. Like, should I do it? And the response was, go ahead and have the children because once you have children, you get a lot more serious about, like, how you're going to spend your time. You know you have, like, a six-hour window to be in the office so you, like, kind of crush it. Do you think that's true or? Well, it was, I think there, Zadie Smith said something like, I'm a lot less precious about what kind of pencil I'm using. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or, for example, I was flying back from um, New York. I had a couple book events a couple weeks ago, and, I wrote that week's column on the airplane on my, like, you know, iPad and my portable keyboard that's missing the R key. (laughs) Like, you just do what you can when you have the time to do it. Um, Yeah. But in terms of having kids, the other things, um, I mean, I still, like, goof off. I'm not going to – 
I, I feel like sometimes that, like moms are all over Facebook. That's their, that's their <laughs> social media platform of choice. Um, but um, the other thing I want to say about kids is it kind of changed my perspective on the world in a way that I didn't foresee. I think, you know, as a fiction writer or even as a journalist, I always thought, like, I can be empathize or try and imagine from another person's point of view, like, what it means to be a parent, maybe. Mm-hmm. But just having kids makes me think about things in ways I didn't before. Anything from the wonder they have in experiencing things for the first time, like snow or rain, and just, like, it makes the universe magical again. Yeah. Um, but it also kind of makes language magical again. We were at REI and saw these kayaks propped up on their sides, and they were calling them space, um, rocket ships or Hershey kisses, and they were calling them castle chocolates. Okay, my last sappy cute story, like we were holding hands uh, the other day, and my, my one of my sons said to me, our hands are hugging. Oh. <laughs> so, so, I mean, in some ways, like kids are unintentional poets, right? They're just saying yeah. what, what they see, and then as we grow up, we kind of think like, oh, there's only one way or there's a right way of using words. Um, but, but so having, being around kids kind of makes me get closer to that again. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a good point. Is there any other advice you have for women in their twenties, writing career advice, anything really? Enjoy your (laughs) twenties. No, I'm actually, I don't, I don't mourn my 20s. Like, I don't wish I was in my 20s anymore, but it's, it is an exciting time. There's lots of opportunities for, for growth and for having fun. And, um, and I'm going to say this, it's okay to be in your 30s. It's even okay to be in your 40s. So, and ever onward, right? Yeah. Um, I think my, my book, uh, my book of short stories, 15 Other Possibilities came out last year and I was, um, 41, and I'd always thought, oh, I want a book by the time I'm 40, and it didn't shake out that way, and it was still okay. It was still, like, one of the most exciting. You still wrote a book, yeah. I still that's, wrote a book. Right, that's all that matters at the end of it. Yeah, so, I yeah. guess. And, and, yeah, just, but also make time for, you know, the people in your life, um, you know, the relationships in your life, and my husband says I'm, like, a connector, like I'm a spoke of a wagon wheel, or like families, you know, I have family members that we would never get together if not for you. So, yeah, that may not be your thing or your listener's thing, but like for me, it's always been rewarding to like do anything from say, like, hey, you should apply for this to hey, you guys should date. So, like, yeah, be out in the world in the ways that make you fulfilled and happy. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to Vanessa. Please remember to read her newest book when it comes out this year. Again, it's called A River of Stars. I love Vanessa's advice about asking someone in your office whom you think would give you great advice, not to dinner or drinks, but simply to take a quick walk with you in the hallway. I'm going to try it out this week and you should too. Okay, that's it for now. Please follow the podcast on Twitter at LifeTKPodcast and on my Instagram at Life underscore TK. Subscribe to my newsletter by going to lifetk.com, scrolling down to the bottom of the About page and clicking Updates. Search for me on Facebook and like that page as well. 
Thanks, guys. See you next time.